Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and it's a, a great treat to have my friend Christopher Yuan, Dr. Yuan, back on the broadcast today. His newest book is called Holy Sexuality in the Gospel, and uh, we've talked about that, and Christopher has been a go-to resource for, for me personally and for In Context. Now he's got a new project that we want to talk about, a video project. He's been working on a very long time, a curriculum. But before we jump into that, I, I just want to get an update from you, Christopher, on give me the two, three, you know, all things LGBTQA pressing in in the Christian church and the Christian culture, the Christian mindset. What are kind of the trends you're seeing now as these ongoing challenges for churches, for youth pastors, for young Christians to stand and understand how God made us uh, men or women. I'm so used to calling you Dr. Easley, and I'm so, I guess I'm <laughs> supposed to call you Michael, but that's so hard for me. But yes, thank you so much for having me on. You're just such a dear friend, you know, that I knew back when I was a just mere student and you were president. Uh, so we're, thank we're, you. We're both mere students. Come on. We're just, we're I just, guess so, we're yes. just continuing but, to study, but right? You were president for a while, and I was a mere student <laughs> at this time. But yes, I guess you're right. You know, I'm seeing more and more, you know, Michael, I would say, 10 plus years ago, the church was all concerned about, and rightly so, of the churches that were affirming same-sex marriage. And that still is a huge issue. But this is what I'm seeing. I'm seeing the lines more and more blurred, where now Bible-believing or historically Bible-believing evangelical churches that used to say they have a high view of Scripture are now almost saying, well, we need to agree to disagree, or we need to start using the terminology, and they won't say it like this, but in, in essence they are, you know, we need to use the terminology of the world. People are gay, they are straight, or, you know, or, or bisexual, or so-called transgender, even with an asterisk, etc., all this terminology to win them. It seems loving, but when we press in, it's not. So it's honestly, it, it is in essence kind of a, this slippery slope that that's what I'm kind of seeing in the church today. You know, last time we talked, one of the things that it struck me, and again, I can be sometimes slow to grasp the obvious, but we were talking about, you know, you and I have had the discussion, your identity is either in Christ or not in Christ. That's the scriptural lens that we look at this. It's not how I feel or if I'm a boy who's a girl or a girl who's a boy or some other iteration. And you took me, knocked me back on my heels and said, no, Michael, it's about truth. And I've thought a lot about that, Christopher, since you said that. In fact, I interviewed our friend Rosario Butterfield and uh, Janet Parshall and I recently talked about this and they were both like, you know, ecstatic going, that's exactly right. Because a lot of this, and, and again, you're, I have to give you credit, you're the first one that got me thinking, what's true? And you can call yourself you know, a live oak tree if you want, but it isn't true. And you know, again, I, I think I called you reductionistic in a good way. <laughs> you reduced it down to this is the real issue. So, I mean, let, let's, for friends maybe that haven't listened to that interview that you and I had, talk a little bit about this baseline, if you will, what's true, no matter what the world, the culture, or even the church, sadly, might be selling. Well, you know, it's what is the world saying is true right now is essentially if you feel something that's your truth, if you think something that's your truth, and that really has come out of not nothing, but it's come out of these humanist philosophies from the mid-1800s. 
the Romantic period, existentialism, all these philosophies where first what that came out of was a rejection of not just organized religion, which I think that needed to be critiqued at that time, but what happened was they threw the baby out with the bathwater. So there is no God, and if there's no God, we have no purpose, no value, no dignity, and then we need to create that ourselves. And where do we do that if we have no inherent value or dignity or essence? Well, we do that from our experience. That's essentially existentialism. So meaning, purpose, value, and truth is not determined by an absolute truth, but by subjective experience. And so essentially, we are just reaping the rotten fruit of the mid-1800s and 1900s, etc., and even now postmodernism. And I think we've moved on from postmodernism to the new worldview, which is critical theory. So that's kind of where we are. As Christians, many of us are just shocked. And where this seems to come out of nowhere, it didn't come out of nowhere. We've been as a culture in the West, been sowing this and fertilizing this rottenness, I guess, if you will, these yeah. rotten trees that produce rotten fruit. And that is now where now truth is not anything that is actually absolutely true, but is something that is created by human beings, by our own feelings and thoughts. And that's where we now get identity, like transgenderism. The real issue isn't what is male or female. That is an issue. But the biggest problem is what is truth. When you speak to teens and student groups around the country, pastors can get a woe is me attitude. I don't know how to deal with this. And kids have drunk the Kool-Aid, as it were. And yet you've got them lining up and they want to talk to you afterwards. Two, three things that you hear young people, students say consistently about maybe where they were headed with what was true for them. And then after you've challenged them or talked to them or presented something from a biblical framework, they've gone, okay, that, you know, I need to lean into that and think more critically. Well, you said lining up. I think for now, I, I'm, right. I'm a pessimist. And, and maybe that, that's where we kind of... Uh, we, <laughs> we get along. <laughs> we, we get along really well because we're both pessimists at heart. We're the not romantic. The sky is we're falling. The sky is falling. <laughs> Everything's burning down. We're all... So we do commiserate and laugh at go. the same time. You have to. Uh, but <laughs> I'm saying there may be lining up for now, but I'm almost foreseeing in the near future. And I won't be surprised, unfortunately. I mean, but God's going to preserve a remnant. Yeah. So I would say some of these questions kind of twofold. One, my friend, my friend or my brother, my close friend, they're identifying now as lesbian, gay, trans. How do I reach them where this has become inseparable from their essence? And so a lot of people just struggling with that question. Now, how do I do this by being full of grace and full of truth? And they're saying what I'm hearing so much now from sometimes my own pastor or sometimes from these so-called experts, well, we just need to, you know, just embrace them and yep. love them. And the issue is, do we love? Absolutely. But we love in God's ways, not human's ways, because this is the human way, just love. When we say just love, I think that's a human way because that makes love an end in itself, where love needs to be a means to an end, and that end must always be Christ. We can't just show compassion and grace without any purpose, any goal. The goal must be faith in Christ and transform life in Christ. 
So it's kind of the people struggling with this, their friends, but then individuals where, you know, they've heard, I haven't heard a story like this. My church has been either really dogmatic or too lenient. And, you know, Michael, when I'm speaking, a big part of what I really want to focus on is not what you need to do, what I need to do, what someone else needs to do, not human effort or human-centered or man-centered, but Christ-centered. I mean, isn't that what Christianity is about? Not what we need to do, but what God has already done and recognizing that reality. And so a lot of times people hear, well, I've, I've heard a lot of different talks or read books on this, and, and I've never heard kind of just this, this so clarion focus on follow Jesus. And what does that mean? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Just last week, I had a student at a apologetics conference that said, I struggle with same-sex attractions. I, you know, this is a boy, a young man. I, I dated other young, you know, other boys. And I was walking away from the Lord and just heard that, you know, that my message is not you know, that the main focus is gay to straight and not even focusing primarily on sexuality, but focusing on knowing and surrendering to Christ. So that is a win for me because if I don't preach Christ, if I don't point people in whatever I'm speaking on, whether I'm speaking on sexuality or gender, which is the main thing I I speak on, or whether I'm speaking on something else, if I'm not pointing people to faith in Christ and being sanctified by God's grace, then I'm not pointing people to anything. So I would say those are some things that when people are coming up to me and their responses, kind of giving me a confirmation that, you know, this is, this is the Lord's work and this is what ultimately we all are called to in whatever situation or topic that we're talking about. You, know, you and I have talked before about Bible college seminaries, grad schools, traditionally historically Christian schools that have shifted dramatically. And one of the things that, again, we've commiserated on is nomenclature. And you talked about mm-hmm. engaging or embracing the culture, and I've that's a, been a big concern of mine as well. I was in a conversation recently with a very influential person in, in high places in, in a grad school situation. The way they were parsing the issues, Christopher, was so depressing to me. And it was like, well, if this is wrong, why are we trying to somehow ameliorate everything around it and say, oh, it's not that bad? Michael, you're just being, you know, whatever. You're too dogmatic, which I get more and more these days. You're too bulldogmatic. You're black and white. And I go, well, yeah, I'm happy to be black and white. But one of the things I think we miss in this is the capitulation to either cultural nomenclature, changing the language, capitulation to trying to be loving in the wrong ways you've just shared, has been the lack of clarity combined with if you follow Christ, or rather as we follow Christ, a lot of those affections fall away. You know, take up your cross and follow me. That almost sounds like a a trudgery and a (laughs) discipline and a hardship, which it may be at times, but the old fact, faith, feeling train that Bill Bright had in his little pamphlet many years ago, it's kind of cheesy, but there's some value in there, is that not? The fact of God's love, the truth of Scripture, the truth of who we are in Christ, as we obey, as we follow, the feelings may well follow. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think when we begin accommodating to the world, what they're saying is, you know, 
basically, you know, taking on this, this framework of we're all oppressed and kind of we're victims. And honestly, if, if anyone could be a victim, it's Jesus Christ. <laughs> he, he was accused of something that he was completely not guilty of, but he talked about the joy that we can have in the midst of sufferings, and the New Testament authors all talked about that as well. So you're exactly right, and and that in the midst of us following Jesus, denying yourself, taking up your cross, um, there is immense otherworldly joy that we would not experience, mm-hmm. you know, apart from that. So that key aspect of joy in Christ, you know, finding our not happiness in this world, not just be happy, but it's the joy of the Lord, which involves difficulty and suffering. So definitely when we begin accommodating, you know, with the world, and unfortunately, you know, many, many institutions, churches and Christian institutions, I mean, and we shared about this in the past that, you know, it was, I used to speak at a lot of Christian schools and now what I'm finding is many of these Christian schools protests. You know, that, that was actually over a dozen years ago. There would be students protesting. But, you know, Michael, the issue now, it's not that the students are protesting. Starting maybe six years ago, it was protest organized by the faculty and staff. And these are at historically solid yeah evangelical schools and even seminaries. I mean, I had someone, you know, at a very well-known seminary that you and I both know well, where the student was taking some classes, and this was in two different classes, where the professor, professors in both different professors said, this is an assignment, and if this assignment triggers you, you don't have to do it. We're not talking about a mainline denomination. We are talking about a very, very historically solid, solid, solid seminary. And that's where we are. It's the name of the game, unfortunately, is a combination. Well, to address part of that, you have taken your book on holy sexuality and spent a long time working on a video project. And that's really what we want to talk about today because you've launched this. And it's holy sexuality in the gospel. And as always on these interviews, we have all the information in the show notes. So you don't have to try to you know, capture what Christopher and I are talking about. But you put together a video series that really is a discipleship program. And I always like to ask authors the worst question they want to answer is, why did you decide to take it to this next chapter from a book to a video? Because it's a whole different format, as you discovered. Why this versus a book and a curriculum that we just give to homeschools and tutorials and parents and maybe some student ministry groups. So talk about this resource for discipleship really out of the home, if I understand correctly. I wish I could say it was my idea, but it was the Lord guiding us, shutting doors as he always does so well. It's like, nope, that's not where I want you to go. I had envisioned, kind of like what you're talking about, Michael, a book. I really wanted to take holy sexuality and the gospel and turn it into holy sexuality and the gospel for teens. That's what I was like envisioning. I'm just going to take my book and kind of make it more accessible for teenagers. Well, God closed that door. And so I thought, well, what am I going to do now? And I look at my contract and I said, oh, I can actually get the curriculum right. So I got the curriculum right. So I was thinking still something in writing as a curriculum. 
But then God began moving me in the direction of saying, you know, curriculum, I think, is a good idea. But first of all, the word curriculum scares teens away. I don't know what teenagers like. Oh, yeah, I can't wait for a curriculum. (laughs) And, you know, Michael, I bemoan this fact that teenagers aren't reading enough. You know, teenagers need to be reading more. But that's if, if I'm thinking of something that's kids aren't doing, this is not maybe like a school thing, and it's maybe outside of school, to have them read something maybe extra and hard for them. So I thought, what's the medium that kids are just voraciously consuming today? Unfortunately, not books, but it's videos, Mm -hmm. these short videos. And I thought, man, and this is around the time that I had created a video called Is Being Gay Genetic with another large ministry. It was instructional. So I was speaking, talking into a teleprompter, and I was reading it, and then it would kind of go back and forth with some animation, whether words come on the screen or whether it's kind of animating what I'm saying. And I'm a very visual learner, and I need to be engaged. I think I have a little bit of that attention deficit issue. I'm a visual learner, so that helped. And I thought, wow, what a great way to communicate truth. And it can be, you know, I'm saying four points. It puts the points up there, focuses on one. It goes through, and I was like, that is great. So I thought, let's do something really similar. So that's when I shifted from a written curriculum to a video series. And instead of calling it curriculum, we're calling it the Holistic Reality Project, which I think is much more catchy. So that's kind of the direction that we went. In the same way, we were moving not only just from a series or a resource for like the classroom or the youth group room, but we wanted to move it to the family room, the living room, the dining room, because Deuteronomy 6, the great commandment that Mm -hmm. God gave to Israel, that's in the context of home discipleship, right? Teach us to your sons and your sons' sons and do this diligently, Deuteronomy 6, 7. The importance of that is caked into the greatest commandment. Are we then teaching God's ways to our kids diligently? Are we doing this, teaching them about biblical sexuality when we sit, when we rise, when we lie, when etc.? Mm-hmm. So I think those things are important. And yet all the resources that I know are mainly for the church or mainly for a Christian school, which I think are helpful, but we wanted to make it pushing it toward home discipleship, which of course, pastors and churches will be a part of that. They kind of need to help parents to change that paradigm from thinking of it's the church's job, it's a youth pastor's job, it's my Christian teacher's job to teach my kids about God and biblical sexuality and change that paradigm to know the parent and even the grandparent, they are the ones that have the primary responsibility to do that job. Churches are to cheer them on, to walk with them, maybe to get get groups of parents together to go through it first. So there's many different ways, but that was our vision to do this. And we didn't see any resource focusing specifically on that. Parents might be an afterthought, but not actually the primary focus. Well, and most parents, myself included, it's even if you're pretty competent it's hard to teach your children about sexuality when our kids were younger we had these age-appropriate books i think it was a lutheran project that had done one and then another group came on and it was geared for like three to five it was abstract it was god made you different then as in you know the science behind this as you've gotten into with what particular age can handle from abstract to plumbing, I call it, those different you know kinds of ways of teaching. And some parents are very uncomfortable even with that with their kids, even though you have good resources and making it you know 
matter of fact, which is always a great way to do things. Let's talk about the program. It's 12 lessons. They're broken down. With There's a PDF that goes with it so they can get a line by line, if you will. How long are each of the lessons? I understand it's about 270 minutes of content. So of the 12 programs, give me an idea, give folks an idea of how much time they're going to be watching a video and interacting. Yeah, the 12 lessons are about, they consist of three videos each. And the PDF you mentioned, we call it the parent guide, or it can also be like a grandparent guide. And I know people are like, oh, so it's only for parents? My church might have a lot of kids who are unbelievers. I encourage this to be viewed as, you know, the youth pastor or especially the small group leaders in the youth group. They're actually spiritual parents, you know, for these kids that don't have spiritual parents. They don't have a father or mother who's following the Lord. So it's still parent guide in that sense, spiritual parent, grandparent, spiritual grandparent. This parent guide begins each lesson with with a statement, maybe a few sentences, a kickoff question to help the gears going, just kind of get a baseline for where our kids are at. Then you watch a 10-minute video on average, then have maybe four to eight questions following that, and then have another second teaching video of 10 minutes, then have some more four to eight questions after that. And then we have a wrap-up video of just two to three more minutes, and then closing with just one kind of overview question there. So in total, the videos is about 23 minutes each lesson. So total about 45 to an hour of each lesson that includes the conversation and the discussions that go with it. And we walk parents along with that. In your mind and your developer team, how long do you want them to think about this 12 weeks or 12 days? Or what's your idea? It could be once a week for 12 weeks. I think it could be even doable to do it twice a week for six weeks. Some people might just want to kind of get it all in in two weeks, you know, six per week or something like that. I would say it's very flexible. So we didn't want to call it 12 weeks. And sometimes maybe parents can do two a week. Other times maybe they can do only one. Sometimes they might be able to do three. But leaving that up to parents and envisioning this as either coming into their rhythm of daily family discipleship time, or it could maybe kickstart a habit of this time together as a family to do some discipleship and getting in God's Word. So it's flexible. I got to believe that even if it was once a week, there's going to be, oh, by the way, conversations, you know, as they talk about it. What do you think about that video lesson? What do you think about the questions? Have you given any? Because some children process quickly. Some children have to think through things. And if they were to come back around, you know, that really bothered me. Or I really liked that. Or I didn't understand that. And be able to, you know, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of learning pedagogies on how much, how quickly. But I know you, you put a lot of thought in that. Talk about age. What's the design, your uh, age target? The target is kids in high school, teenagers, but we also foresee that this could be used by preteens in middle school as well. We want parents to be the ones that decide for their kids themselves. So 
parents you might know of a preteen who's more mature and able to think abstract thoughts and kind of there when it comes to discussing these issues of sexuality. So that easily can be. But we know some preteens that are still kind of mentally and cognitively still developing a little bit more. So maybe not. We do encourage that if you're kind of on the fence, I would lean toward erring on earlier rather than later. Because to be honest, parents, what ends up happening is they're erring on later and it becomes a big error in, in that sense when they're waiting too long. So err on lean into more earlier rather than later. But I would say teens and preteens for sure. And to say something really exciting, we're envisioning our next project to be for parents and their children, something for younger kids. Well, and again, you and I have talked about this before. This indoctrination is happening in elementary school, and you can hardly have any form of social media, even a glancing blow, and not be inundated by you know so many messages about who you are, who your identity is, how you feel. Again, for folks that aren't familiar with your book, Holy Sexuality, give us a little bit of an overview of, you talk about the false identity and then you go into a true identity. So what are you trying to tell a preteen or a teen, this is the false identity you're going to hear about and see? Yeah, and this is where my book, Holy Sexuality and the Gospel, I'm basing this video series on my book. It was named 2020 Book of the Year for Social Issues by Outreach Magazine. And so I thought, man, I'm just going to take that content and use that for this video series. I actually do add a few more things. But for the book and for the video series, I start where I think, you know, as a person who identified as gay and lived far apart from Christ, you know, who lived as a gay man, what I see, one of the biggest things that Christians miss when understanding this error of sexuality and homosexuality and transgenderism, the error that they're making, I think the primary thing is how the world has conflated sexuality with personhood. How the world has conflated gender, so-called gender, that concept, with personhood. So I begin there. You know, you and I, we lived in a time, we grew up in a time. I'm born in 1970, so 70s and 80s. Biblical sexuality was actually accepted. It was the norm. Those things outside of sexuality, man and a woman in marriage, was not accepted. Well, guess what? This is what's so scary, Michael. Our kids today, they're being raised in a time that They never knew when biblical sexuality was accepted, the norm. And rather, what we see now is all they know is that the so-called gay marriage, you know, you can be however many so-called genders, that that is what's normal and accepted. That's the time, unfortunately, that we're living in. So identity is, I think, where we must start and I think that's a good litmus test for us today to see, is this person who's speaking on this topic, do they actually get the most important issue, which is identity, the term gay, the term lesbian, though on the surface level, it does mean having attractions to the same sex, but that's not its only meaning. This is important because Christians will say, well, I just mean that people are attracted to that. That's not the big problem. The big problem is how gay and bisexual and lesbian and 
and even gender has now been conflated with identity. These are false identity. This is not who we are, but it's how we are. And if we can help our kids and our teenagers and our preteens to understand that that primary mistake, then we're off to a right start. Because when you're off, your trajectory is going to be off and you're not going to land on Christ. Charles Spurgeon, my favorite quote outside the Bible, he said, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. Mm. I think there's a lot of people saying stuff that's almost right, stuff that sounds good, but if they don't get the identity right, it's going to land not on Christ. You know, and somewhere in here, I know it's it can be cliche, but you know, I've never had a guilty conscience over avoiding sin. I've never had a shame feeling over choosing not to sin. I've shared many times there was a, a woman who raised three strapping boys who turned out to be good godly men to raise three big kids that were involved in sports and all the tumbling and you know, fighting and rolling around and lacrosse games and whatnot. She had a just a, a very kind but firm fiber about her. And she taught her boys, if you have to think about something twice, you already know you don't need to do it. <laughs> That's a good one. And I thought it was so great, just so simple. And I've appealed to that many, many times in my mm. own life. Yeah, if I had to think about good. this twice, just don't do it. Christopher, the culture and even Christian schools and our Christian friends are just they're just pouring us with this information about love and acceptance and kindness and get over it and get out of the puritanical mindset. It's who you are. Embrace your identity. It's a feeling. It's who you are. And it goes back to that, you know, what's wrong with waiting? What's wrong with saying, you know, maybe, but I don't have to give in to that impulse or that temptation and I'll never regret not sinning. I'll never regret not making a bad choice. But again, in the prevailing winds of our culture, we just we're not going to hear that from many resources we respect. That's right. That's right. And and I think even even more, we're trying to take suffering away from the gospel. Jesus suffered. Yep. We want a suffer free life. And if we do that, we're actually, we end up taking Christ out of that picture. And a lot of times Christian leaders, they want, you know, singleness is so unfair. In essence, we're giving this impression that the Christian life is about just health, wealth, and prosperity. It's just about have a good life. How can I point people to Christ if it's going to be hard? That's kind of the the message, you know. Life is going to be hard, actually. That's whether it's with Christ or without Mm -hmm. Christ. Life is going to be hard, but what makes Christianity different is through those difficulties, we have the joy, as we just talked about before, that though you're denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus, I can still do that with total joy. And that's what we're pointing them to. It's joy in the midst of suffering and the importance of recognizing that and pointing people to that costly discipleship. It's pointing people to a life that is like Christ, where we are, in essence, you know, corporately sharing in that suffering that we have that's just a part of regular life. And it can be even more now as Christians, but we're doing that because I even look back in the sufferings that I've had, whether it's 
struggling with sin or whether it's just living for Christ and how much I have immensely grown from that, giving in to our pleasures, you know, the thinking twice. Rosaria, she would always often joke, and she would sometimes even say this in her own talks, she would say, talking in the context that sinning actually feels good. Yes. You know, if, if it doesn't feel good, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> it does feel I mean, good, not in a good moral sense, but it feels, you know, experientially good because that's our flesh. If it didn't feel good, then it wouldn't be a temptation. Then it wouldn't be something right. that we would struggle with. We struggle with it because it, it makes our flesh feel good for the moment. But in the long run, there is just grave harm to us and to the Lord. I think we cannot take the difficulties of life and the trials of life and the sufferings from life and somehow separate it from the gospel. If you're willing to talk a little bit about this, coming out of the gay lifestyle, how has Christopher Yuan changed? Because mm. you've gone from however you would identify yourself as a gay person to a Christian, to and you've always been careful with avoiding labels and nuancing, I'm not a gay Christian, I'm not a celibate gay, I'm not a celibate Christian. You've been very careful to avoid that language, and I applaud you for that. But you're flesh and blood too, just like Rosaria, just like me. And our temptations are real. Have they lost some of their grip on you as you follow Christ? And can you talk about maybe some defining moments where you saw that really move you, you know, let's say, you know, 10 yards down the field? You know, I mean, this comes down to what is sanctification. Okay. And, you know, obviously, when you read scripture and the New Testament, and even Paul talks about you have been sanctified. So there is a positional sanctification that occurs when we come to Christ. Justification is, you know, the holiness of Christ being imputed to us and his justification. We are now justified. And that's kind of part of that process of like, we have been. So that's like a punctiliar moment in time. But then we also have the future where you will be sanctified or that complete sanctification and being made holy. But we're in this middle period now of, am I sanctified? Yes. Am I being sanctified? Yes. Will I be sanctified? Yes. So it's yes, yes, yes. And understanding those different aspects, that one point in time when I came to Christ, when I was justified, I am no longer in bondage to my sin. I have been redeemed. And what does that mean? As we know, as you know, Bible scholars, we understand redemption. It's being purchased, a slave being purchased out of slavery. But honestly, we aren't actually completely free in a sense from that, just free from no other Lord. We are now no longer slaves to sin, but as Paul talks about, he's now a slave of Christ. So Christ is my now Lord. The only difference is now I have a slave master who loves me and is going to treat me well and, and give me so much that I don't deserve and even make me, which is so amazing, an heir. That's so phenomenal. But we're in this middle period of progressive mm -hmm. sanctification. So that question, Michael, is such a great question because I get this a lot. Have you changed? Do you have any more of these you know, temptations? I have been, you know, the transformation is amazing. Initially, it was a fierce struggle, even after coming to Christ. Did I wrestle? Yes. And some of that was some of those body memories mm -hmm. of just when I was in that sin for so long 
that that created, and it's physiological as well, the brain wiring, you know, need to be rewired, which, sure. praise the Lord, God is able to do. That doesn't mean it's going to happen in an instant, doesn't mean that you will no longer have these struggles, but looking at what does it mean to be a Christian? Is it no longer being tempted Jesus was tempted in every way, the writer of Hebrews says, but he's without sin. So we will be tempted. Jesus was tempted for 40 days by Satan. And so we will be tempted as well. But but the Holy Spirit, indwelling Holy Spirit, empowers us no longer to be in bondage to sin, but empowers us to now have this new option. You know, Augustine talks about, you know, the four states of man. Now, before, you know, we didn't have any other option than to sin. Now we have the option to not sin. And then in the future, we will be not able to sin. And so right now we do have this option, but it's still this this struggle, this temptation that we need to, you know, when you're tempted, if you got to think twice, like that mother was so wisely said, we got by God's Holy Spirit yeah. power to say no to that. In the time that's been, goodness, 20 plus years, 22, 23 years that I've known the Lord, there is a big, big difference mm. in my temptations. And though this may be something that I may still be tempted with, not as nearly as much as it was before, but it's on this big list, <laughs> Michael, if we're going to be honest, of other things that I wrestle with, pride, anger, yeah. jealousy, Probably those things are actually much more, which is why when people say, you know, I'd, some people even crazily say, I don't believe in transformation. Absolutely not. My transformation, though, is not limited to sexuality because I view the biblical view of sanctification, that sanctification is for the whole person, including how we act sanctification, our desires, sanctification, our thoughts, sanctification, all of that, not just our sexual thoughts or sexual desires or sexual behaviors. That is what God wants in our lives. So yes, have I been changed? But but here's what's also very important, that my journey, that as I'm speaking on sexuality, I'm invited to do that. And I speak on this in my testimony and helping people through this. Many people hear my story, a guy who used to identify as gay and now no longer do, kind of zeroing on that sexuality. And that definitely is an important aspect of it. But that's not how I summarize it. This is how mm. I summarize it. I once was blind yeah. and now I see. I once Amen. was lost, and now yep. I'm found. I once did not believe, and now I believe in the Son of God, and His name is Jesus. That's my testimony. John 9 has got to be one of my top 10 favorite characters, his exponential learning of who Christ is. But one of my favorite lines is where he says, here's an amazing thing I've told you three times, and, and you still don't believe. Do you too want to become his disciple? <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you mentioned pride. A friend of mine who's a physician reads a lot of ancient Christian literature. He's in Jerome and Eusebius and other things, but he sent me a text this morning from Jerome. Realize how evil pride is from the mm. very fact that there is no excuse for it. And I thought, wow, that's a great way of saying it because, you know, I, I've often said lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. Really, you could synthesize it to one word, pride. That's right. I think, I, 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 and, you know, whether it's the I wills that 
we used to contend that was Satan. I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. But point being, you know, there's only one who can wield that, and that's Christ, and, and we're, we're also Rands. We're closing down here pretty quickly. I want to ask you, one of the lessons in one of your chapters on your book is, what's the big deal? And that's always been intriguing to me because, you know, we shrug our shoulders at so much in society, and I think the church wholesale there are a handful of churches, but they're getting smaller in number that are still standing firm with the gospel, still standing firm on not being hateful. I know it's cliche, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. I know all that stuff gets vilified and it's pejorative, but it's true. And that's why I argue for clarity, not being clever. What is the big deal, Christopher? I mean, can't we just get along and yeah, we all sin and okay, maybe... Your definition is a little more narrow than mine. Yeah, this was actually one of those, the lessons, lesson eight, that wasn't in my book and it is in the video series because I think teens, that's what they're, God needs to get out of my bedroom. He should be not concerned with what people do in the privacy of their own home. So I really wanted to have a whole lesson or at least a whole video addressing that question, what's the big deal? And I point to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians where, you know, sexual sin is a big deal. I do a bit of exegesis there and I make five important points. And one thing that as I was doing that, I noticed how Paul very intentionally pulled in every person of the Trinity, the Father, talks about Jesus Christ and then Holy Spirit, right? I mean, why is sinning such a, it's because it's sinning against the body and the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Like this is such a big deal that Paul was pulling the triune God to tell us don't sin sexually. If we're going to look at all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation, if we could pick out two main sins consistently from the old to the new, two main sins, idolatry and sexual immorality. These are very, very important to God and should be important for the mm. people of God. So that's why it's a big deal. But then kind of the following video right after that in the same lesson, it's you know, I can then see people saying, okay, if it's such a big deal, why did God even create sex in the first place? I mean, it's, it's like making life hard for us. And so then I talk about this is why sex, this is the purpose of sex in marriage, biblical marriage. And I go through the, all these points because I really want kids to understand sexual immorality is a big deal, but sex in biblical marriage is also a very good thing. And it really points to God, it points to Christ in the church, and it points to giving glory to God. A product like this has been a long time in development, the Holy Sexuality Project. Again, in the show notes, we'll have the link to the site. This would normally be a $200 package. If you go to the link now, Christopher has an extraordinary opportunity, and this isn't one of these bait-and-switch deals. Individual donors have come alongside Christopher, and what should cost you and me $200 is 20 bucks. 
per household. So you can get a, access to this program for two years for a mere $20. You spend more than that on probably your Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime or however else you stream or watch or listen. If you're a Spotify user, you spend that kind of coin pretty quickly. A way to help your teens. And you know what I would encourage our friends to do is talk to your tutorial, your homeschool group, and say, let's do this together, obviously in our homes, but let's start and go through for whatever, 12 weeks, six weeks, and then let's talk about it as parents over coffee when our kids are in the tutorial or in their homeschool doing their work. Because the community of the church may or may not come alongside, but you can take the initiative to find like-minded parents that are just as terrified, just as concerned, and just as hopeful for their kids that they can steer clear of the world and the lies of the flesh and the devil. So, Christopher, thanks for your ongoing discipline and tenacity. You produce such great content and material, and we want to help any way we can. Again, the Holy Sexuality Project, Dr. Christopher Yuan. Everything's in the show notes, as always. And pray for Christopher, and you'll see some of the folks that are endorsing it, including our friend, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, who's an extraordinary individual, and along with Alex Stuckey and Elisa Childers, my friend, and Jay Warner Wallace and Tim Chalice and you know Dave Dockery, some really good hitters who are saying, no, this is the way we as uh, Christian parents, Christian grandparents, and we might say the way Christopher said, Christian parents, as in student ministry leaders, can have an influence in teens and preteens' lives. So Thanks for doing this. I know it's been a very long journey for you to put this together, and I commend you for getting it done and toughing through it. And I, I really do believe God will use it to change some lives, Christopher. Well, really, really appreciate it, and always grateful for you, your friendship, and your ministry. All right, we'll press on, and, and we'll talk again soon. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.